Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Director of Sports Science at the University of Notre Dame, Matt Howley. This episode of the Pacing Performance Podcast is sponsored by SimplyFaster.com and that's spelled S-I-M-P-L-I Faster.com. So alongside the free lap timing systems, SimplyFaster.com currently holds the eccentric K-Box. So if you haven't heard of the K-Box, it's a new product that uses flywheel technology to allow higher velocity eccentric overload. So I saw the K-Box for the first time when Mike Young from the US brought a couple over for one of his workshops in Gloucester. So off the back of that, I was really keen to use one and I actually got my hands on one and was able to spend a couple of hours playing around with lots of different exercises and getting used to the K-Box. So from personal experience, getting out of the bottom of the squat, powering up and having the K-Box pull you through the floor on the way down is absolutely incredible. So basically, the harder you go on the concentric portion of the lift, the more it's going to give you on the eccentric. So if you're going to go for it, you're going to get pulled through the floor. At simplyfaster.com, there's also a great blog from Frederick, who is one of the co-owners of Eccentric, so you can learn more about the K-Box there. So if you are interested in getting a K-Box, get to simplyfaster.com, so that's S-I-M-P-L-I, faster.com, and get a K-Box for yourself. So this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is also sponsored by Vald Performance, creators of the Nordboard. So if you haven't heard of the Nordboard already, don't worry, I'll explain, it's really, really simple. The Nordboard is a really fast and accurate system for monitoring hamstring strength. So as practitioners, we can do very little about athlete age and previous hamstring injury, but what we can do something about is our athlete's eccentric strength, and that's where the Nordboard fits in really nicely. It isn't going to get your athlete's hamstrings bulletproof, but what it is going to do is give you the right information so you can make the right decisions at the right time. So the Nordboard isn't available until December 2015, but if you do want any more information, you can go over to Vald Performance, that's V-A-L-D performance.com, or email info at valdperformance.com. So today we've got Matt Howley on the phone. Um, so Matt was put on to me through uh, Dr. Brian Mann and like I put in the intro on the, on the website when Brian Mann recommends someone I definitely get in touch so Matt was great to speak to and we discuss everything from performance testing to again importance of coach health off the back of what I discussed in episode 50 with Brett Bartholomew we discuss working with uh, D1 colleges and what's the next step for, for his, his sports science program so I'm going to keep the intro to this episode nice and short because I've got something a little bit different for you today in the intro. So I'm going to introduce a technology segment every episode, which is going to start with a three series, uh, three-part series looking at HRV. So I've asked Marco Altini from HRVfortraining.com to come on to give us a, a three-minute segment on ba- the basics of HRV in the in the first episode. In the second episode, which will be 55, looking at the more practical elements and interpreting HIV for tra- uh, HIV. And then in episode 56, we'll look at some different aspects of HIV and what the future holds for this technology. So I'd love your feedback on the technology segment. Is it worth carrying on? I know you're going to like the, the series with, with Marco. So I'd love your feedback and I'll hand over to Marco for the first part of a three-part series on HIV. Hi Rob, Marco here, maker of HRV for Training. Thanks for having me on your podcast today. So today I'd like to give a short introduction on array variability or HRV, starting by explaining what is it. So practically speaking, our heart does not beat at a constant frequency, so even if we measure our pulse and we get something like 60 beats per minute, it doesn't mean that we have um, a heart that beats exactly every second, but the time differences between beats are slightly different every time. 
it can be slightly less or slightly more than a second, for example. So when we talk about HRV, we talk about ways to quantify this variation between heartbeats or what we call HRV features. So there are many time and frequency domain features. However, especially in the context of using HRV to monitor physiological stress, like training, load, and recovery, the community settled on one specific feature, which is called RMSSD. This is a time domain feature, it's very easy to compute, and this is um, basically what is used by most commercial tools or apps, which will provide either RMSSD or a transformation of this feature that is just scaling the value on a scale between 1 and 10 to make it a bit easier for users to understand. This is also what HRV for training does with uh, the recovery points. So what does HRV represent? Well, here we need to take a bit of a step back and talk about the autonomic nervous system, which regulates many body functions and consists mainly of two branches, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic one. So the sympathetic branch is in charge of the fight or flight response, while the parasympathetic branch promotes rest and recovery, let's say. So making some simplifications, uh, since the autonomic nervous system maintains an adaptive state of balance in our body, we could understand how we react to stressors by analyzing autonomic function. So this means that we would expect higher parasympathetic activity under conditions of rest when we are, for example, well recovered from our trainings. So since the autonomic system regulates the heart beating, among other things, we can use HRV as a proxy to, auto to autonomic function. And basically we use HRV as a way to measure how we react to stressors, like a workout. And this is where collecting HRV data becomes very interesting because we can, for example, better understand how much time our body needs to get back to a normal state after an intense workout. So just to summarize a bit, in this podcast I've introduced a bit of HRV, which represents variations in consecutive heartbeats, and we've seen that HRV is often measured using a time domain feature called RMSSD as a measure of parasympathetic activity. This feature can be used to understand how physiologically rested we are and how much different stressors like training are affecting our body. So in the next podcast, I'll go a bit more practical, talking about interpreting HRV, what factors are influencing HRV the most, and also best practices for short 60 seconds measurements, which are very important to make sure we have reliable data. And we can use this data to understand how we are responding to a particular training program and make better decisions. Thanks again, Rob. So huge thanks to Marco for his introduction into HRV. As he mentioned, uh, more coming up in episode 55, which will be part two of his three-part series on HRV. So the vision behind the technology segment was just to kind of add more value to the podcast, really. Add more value to the listeners and give something a little bit different without taking away from the actual interview itself. So I'd love your feedback. Is it something that you want to continue with? Um, because it's just as much yours as it is mine. So we'll get over to the episode with Matt. Hope you enjoy it. Let me know your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, on email, and I will speak to you shortly. Hi, guys. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So today we've got Matt Howley, who is the uh, Director of Sports Science at the University of Notre Dame. So hopefully I've said that right and not pissed people off straight away with the... Uh, Wrong pronunciation of the uni. Um, so just want to thank Matt for his, uh, for his time this afternoon or this morning in his case uh, and just ask him to give us a little bit of an introduction on his education, his background and what he's currently doing. So welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, um, it's good to be on. Like A lot of my mentors or people that I have a lot of respect for in the industry have been on, so pretty flattered to have the opportunity to sit down and have a chat with you. So my, my background, um, I'm obviously from Australia and I've moved over to the US um, for work. Um, so I started off uh, undergraduate at Deakin University um, and then progressed to um, complete my master's at Edith Cowan, um, the master's strength conditioning they have online there. Um, from an experience standpoint, 
Started off um, first year of university. I um, need to thank Dawson Kidgel. Um, he put an opening out at the Eastern Rangers, which is uh, TSC Cup, which is the development competition of the Australian Football League, um, where the draftable players will come through. Um, so I had the opportunity to head down there and just basically um, be a lackey for the for the preseason period and helped out, did a good job, and got kept on. And sort of that's how things have progressed from there. So spent. Four years there, um, two years as strength and conditioning coach and then two years as um, what they termed as high performance manager, so sort of running the whole program. From there, um, have been fortunate enough to try a couple other things, spent a, an off-season with the Melbourne Storm um, in the rugby league, so, so that was interesting to, to get down there and um, see a different sport as well. And then always had the interest of moving overseas or traveling and working overseas, so um, looked at internships and then um, Notre Dame was the first place to contact me um, and then ended up here on an internship and sort of things have progressed from there. Um, got, oh, got interviewed after my internship, didn't get the first job but then a second position come open as an assistant strength and conditioning coach. Um, so I then took that opportunity uh, during the period of getting my visa and that organized, had the opportunity while back home to spend about eight months with Hawthorne uh, in the AFL. So uh, obviously had a lot of success recently, um, was there right at the front end of their success. So really good program there. I uh, have a lot of respect for those guys and what they're doing down there, Andrew Russell and the crew. Um, so uh, it was great to spend some time there. They moved over um, three years as strength and conditioning coach or assistant strength and conditioning coach uh, at Notre Dame, working with men's soccer rowing, men's and women's golf and women's tennis and then um, obviously as things started to come along was just bringing some ideas to the table from more of a sports science perspective and then last November was fortunate enough to um, get a promotion or get moved into the role of director of sports science um, which is where I am right now. Cool. So there's, we've had quite a few, um, well two in particular that come to mind, uh, high performance managers um, over, over in Australia. What was your role as high performance manager, what did that mean? Okay, so um, being that it was at a lower level, um, it sort of still evolved or required a lot of hands-on work in different areas. So um, I would still write all the strength programs, all the conditioning programs as my assistants there essentially were first and second year undergraduate university students just looking to get some experience. So we would try and have four or five of those kids around um, all the time. Then I also had um, a, like not a full-time assistant but someone that was sort of on staff there as well um, and we, we were both sort of on on area basis so it was no it wasn't a full-time role as such so uh, me and Daniel were the were the full-time guys there um, so everything from reporting injuries or recording injuries with the physio when they did their assessments uh, movement screen kind of stuffs warm-ups cool downs recovery um, everything on game day I was also the match day runner for anyone that knows like AFL, like delivering the messages and those kind of things. So a wide variety of tasks um, were involved in, in that position. So quite different to um, what they experienced at the professional level. But then from a data tracking standpoint, our system was just basically session RPE at that standpoint um, as we didn't have availability in the, of any technology. Mm. Cool. So you were getting you were getting paid over in in a paid position in Australia, and then you came over to America uh, to be a free intern. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Yeah. So just just wanted to move over and and get some experience. Um, so came over as an unpaid intern. So essentially saved up and knew how much it was going to cost me. So saved up the money and moved over for the three months. And um, yeah, unpaid intern here, which. Um, as a lot of people have seen, like when you're starting off as an intern, you've got to work above and beyond. So pretty much 12 hours a day, six or seven days a week. So it's, it's pretty taxing on you from a lifestyle standpoint. But being that I came over and had no family in this area, um, it was sort of easy to still get my sleep and all those kind of things around doing the long hours. Cool. So you mentioned that you got more introduced, well, you introduced some, some more ideas um, sports science-wise. And that's obviously the, one of the main reasons that you got the promotion at, at the university. So how, what do you see the future for that you're going to bring to, as, from a sports science perspective to the university? And how do you see sports science as a whole moving forward? Huge um, question. Yeah, big loaded question. Um, so I think for, for me, it's just growing it. Or my job here is to, 
to grow it out to our sports, um, our coaches and our athletes. So the, the biggest difficulty um, in some respect is a lot of people are apprehensive to change, as we know in sports. A lot of people is like, that's the way we've always done it, so we're just going to keep following down that path. So the biggest thing for me right now, what we're trying to do is educate our coaches um, and our student-athletes in some respect. But we've got some teams, um, hockey, uh, both our soccer teams, our lacrosse teams, that are doing a little bit more than other teams right now. And then, for example, our our men's basketball team, like that's a sport that we're we're trying to do some education on and really grow it out with them to, to develop some buy-in and then be able to um, give them the information that they require or or implement the systems that they need that will complement what they're doing right now. So that's probably the biggest thing for me is just growing it out and educating um, at this point. And then where's it going to go? Um, I think that's sort of unknown right now. I think the biggest thing is everyone, when you say sports science in the US, um, still some people view it as, oh, you're in the lab, um, like you have the ESPN sports science thing and they're doing all these cool things in a lab, but uh, it's more like developing that uh, it's not really the lab that we're talking about here or our lab is the field or the weight room. So instead of doing it um, just from a pure research standpoint, we want to be able to um, have that application to the athlete and be able to develop some change over time. So that's probably the the biggest thing that we're we're trying to um, we're trying to help um, bring along. Mm -hmm. So I'm really interested in the way you educate your coaches and your student athletes. How do you go about doing that? Um, so student athletes um, is usually like group sessions or team talks. So our, our nutritionist. Um, He's just moved over from um, from Baylor. Um, he's he's huge on the team talks and those kind of things. So it's only a five minute thing, but just focusing on key points. So he'll have a topic for the day and then pop in and and have a chat to him about that. For me, um, like for example, with a team, it's usually trying to sit down with them at the start of the year, and it'll it's almost like a, a mini lecture that we'll give to them. But it's trying to ask ask them questions and get them to answer the questions for me is they, they all know the answers and they've all heard it before. It's just making sure we can instill the mindset in them and the importance of compliance and those kind of things. So just a lot of education on the front end. So it's usually like big group talks is what we're using right now. And then there's some kids that will come in um, as we're collecting data off them that we'll then call in and sit down and, and show them um, pieces of information. And obviously, we we're not, we're not going to show them everything, but there's certain things that we need to show them. Like sometimes if we're doing some sleep monitoring or those things, like showing them like the impact of sleep across the night. Okay, how, how was last night's sleep? And then the athlete goes, yeah, I just I just didn't sleep that well last night. And then you, you open the um, the file and you show them like, yeah, the, the first four hours of last night was pretty rough sleep, but the last four you got pretty deep and you had some good sleep um, and those kind of things. Or um, some of the other things that we've, we've tried, we've seen um, through the first beat system, their bodyguard system, some of the stress reactions that occur. And um, obviously, they're student athletes. They're 18 to 21 years old, majority of them. There's football games, there's social life. And um, we've had some student athletes that have worn it after football game weekends. And as we know, football game weekends is a, is a bit of a party around campus. So they'll put it on and then the first six hours of a nine-hour sleep is all stressed. And I'm like, see the impact of alcohol, what it's having on your sleep and those kind of things that really waken them up. And it's not that we're not telling them they can't aspects and social interactions um, in their lifestyle because they need to be allowed to have that on some respect, especially when they're not um, in the competitive season. But just understand the impact this is having on your body and then um, there is a time and a place to do it. So just understand if you're doing it today that it's maybe a 24, 48-hour impact. And we've seen that with some of the kids that um, – the impact hasn't been that first night's sleep or it's the impact of the first night greatly, but there's still been a residual impact on the second night and having them understand that it's not just a, oh, well, I sleep it off and I'm good tomorrow, that it may have an impact for two or three days down the track. Mm -hmm. Cool. So you mentioned data collection there. I'm just interested to get to know what kind of data you are collecting on your guys and how that's, how that's used to influence practice. Okay, so um, so if we use soccer, for example, being that's um, the sport that I'm most heavily involved with or I have sort of full control over everything um, with them, uh, we, we, we're using GPS. So um, we've got 12 units in season. So essentially all our guys that are playing uh, are being tracked in everything they do. Um, we'll be wearing heart rate data or collecting heart rate data during practice. 
um, wellness questionnaires um, each morning um, on certain days of the week. So that's planned out around games um, and those kind of things. I'm obviously very cognizant that I don't want a guy thinking about his muscle soreness um, on a game day that just go and play its game day. In some respect, we've got to go. We've got to get through. It's the, the nature of the beast. Um, so we'll um, collect those on certain days, usually the day after game, minus two, and then some other days in between. Um, and then also collecting session RPE as well um, from the guys, obviously, um, just as another marker. So the way we're using it at the moment is um, like for a global load of training, training load and training stress. So being that we, we can now um, use them in game or track live in games, we can have game data and be able to assess, okay, what was the athlete's load within a game and then how can we plan the subsequent week for each individual athlete and well, obviously catapult and using player load and those kind of things, which is a very individual number. Um, we we look to plan out not necessarily each guy, but but I know that okay I've got certain guys that okay on an average week he's a he's a 3300 guy. I've got another guy that may be a lower accumulator, a little bit more efficient maybe in his movement patterns, those kind of things. He may be a 2800 guy on an average week, and then from there we can chart that out week to week um, and those kind of things. The next step that we've made. Um, this year has been um, like really quantifying our drills and making selection based on what we're trying to get out of some other variables. So um, like whether we need some high intensity running or whether we, we want to make sure we try and get close to max speed. Well, in that sense, we know we need to spread out um, our games um, or, or get, do some bigger small-sided games. So whether that's some 11 v 11 stuff over two-thirds field, as we find with our athletes, that generates or gives them the opportunity to, to hit close to max speed or be able to maintain that quality. Or if it's a day that we, we want to keep it nice and tight um, because we don't want uh, to, them to open up too much, we can obviously do those kind of things as well. And that's something that our, our coaches are really buying into. They've got a menu that we've created for them. Um, so they know out of our four key variables that we're looking at, um, these, is, these are the, um, where it's going to be higher, it's going to have a greater influence on this variable. Or this is where it's lower, and that and that's just all color coded for them, and they they've found that um that really good, and um like the coaches are really good with trying to um hit the numbers, and they're not like okay it's just today we're, we've just got to go like they're understanding, and we'll meet every Monday and start planning out the week, and then I don't have a direct uh, impact on the training session. I won't walk in and go you need to do this drill today. I'm sort of like here's your menu. It's up to you to choose. You're the coach. Like have the creativity with all that kind of stuff. But um, we'll sort of plan out the week. I'll be like, hey, you got 650 units on Tuesday. We're going to go 500 on Wednesday and then we're going to be standard day before a game because that rarely changes on Thursday before we're playing a Friday game or in the moment we're three games in six days. So how does that um, go from Saturday through Tuesday to then playing again on Friday? So um, what's the week look like leading into that? Um, into that first game being that we had a week off but then we're three games in six days but also in the midst of about nine in 26 so um, it's very recovery focused and we're not doing a whole lot of training right now with the guys that are playing majority of the minutes just because of the stress they're feeling in the games. Mm -hmm. So maybe in a in a situation where you're not as as jam-packed with games how would you mimic or would you mimic the, the game the, the data that you get from the game throughout the week and if you do, how do you do that? Um, so, so the way, way we do it is obviously um, I've got data across probably 25 games now, which um, I know as Ben would have probably said the other day, that that's that's enough data to be able to make some some reasonable assumptions on some global um, things, especially with guys that are playing, say, 75-plus minutes in a soccer game. Like You're getting pretty consistent kind of numbers like fatigue points and they're starting to wear off at certain points with that. So the way we're doing it um, is like we've got a, our numbers that we on a high week, a medium week, and a low week based on average that we need to hit across a week and then breaking those down per day. And sometimes it will be looking at things like do we need to increase um, – the amount of uh, high intensity running across the week. Do do we did we not get that in the game, or do we need to drop that off this week for some reason? So they're all the little things that that we will assess, um, like week to week. And it's the the toughest thing in this environment is it's almost a like in like professional clubs, you're going to have three or four people handling this thing. Where at the moment, like I handle it for men's soccer, but then I'm also trying to be across the data from like potentially we have like eight sports using 
um, some forms of technology like that are monitoring during practices at the moment and getting some recommendations to either a strength coach um, or an athletic trainer so they can pass that on to their coach can be difficult. And then for me, the other thing is the fact that I'm not seeing the athletes every day. Sometimes looking at the data on paper on the screen is one thing, but then seeing an athlete and what they're actually producing and what they look like physically is another thing. So um, it requires a lot of communication on our end um, to, to make sure that we're able to help the, the coaches and the athletes out and, and make very good informed decisions. Mm-hmm. So you're speaking now like a proper football person. So <laughs> as we discussed before, it's obviously, as we've gone through already, it's not your, your kind of background. So it, it may seem kind of simple, someone coming from another sport, learning something else, learning football or soccer. But what, what process did you go through coming from a, uh, an Aussie rules background to coming into soccer? Um, I, I would say that the biggest thing was I actually sat in a lot of film sessions, um, which is not maybe normal for a strength and conditioning coach or a sports scientist to do. Um, so I'm lucky. Um, my head coach is nearly 70. He, he probably won't like hearing me say that, but um, got a wealth of experience. Um, played under Sir Alex Ferguson um, in Scotland. He's a Scottish legend, goalkeeper. Uh, had the shutout record until the other year and it just recently got broken. So he's got a wealth of experience. So for me, it's been just listening to him and making sure I really understand what he wants from a game style standpoint um, and those things. So so with him, um, he's he's when I asked him like from a conditioning standpoint, what, what are your three things that, that we want to be good at as a team? Like when I'm doing my needs analysis and he said we want to be at a um, high pressure and we want to be great in transition. Um, and we want to be a really good defensive team. So, and two of those are, are essentially high intensity based activities. Transition is fast running, and being a good pressuring team re- requires quick movement as well. So, when I then did my needs analysis of the sport and then started watching our film and what he was asking for, and, and we'll also watch film, especially um, not in season at the moment, of some of the pro teams and, and break that down because, like, like if, if we're. Um, one of the better teams in the country. Sometimes you can't necessarily um, have other teams or you may not be able to display physically um, our athletes what we're trying to do. So so we'll watch things of Barcelona and these great teams doing really good things. So then we're like, back to the kids or the athletes actually get a picture of what's required. And I think that kind of stuff um, for me really uh, helped me understand the sport. And then I've just been able to grow it out with his help over time. And then uh, as I've got to know it more and developed an understanding um, for the game, game and the athletes um I've, I've had the opportunity to to take some more control or pretty much the whole control of the physical side of things now um and then the coaches look after the soccer side which is which is really good and um we're getting some really good results from that method cool so who is the who is the coach uh, his name's uh bobby clark bobby okay. clark is the coach so yeah so uh aberdeen goalkeeper um for for many years and so, yeah as a scottish legend nice not a bad background to come no. to the uh, university with. Yeah, no, no, he's he's good. And then obviously um, coached in Zimbabwe um, for a bit, then uh, was actually the New Zealand national team coach, I believe it was, and then was at Stanford and now has moved over here and I think he's in about his 15th year out here at Notre Dame now. All right, nice. So I just want to move on to uh, another point that I, uh, I wanted to uh, get your insight on is the, the kind of testing of your, of your athletes, specifically uh, – well, not specifically you, you soccer players, but so you've got to know the sport, you've gone through your, your um, kind of needs analysis, sitting in video sessions and things like that. How do you then create a, a battery, of, a battery of, of tests, which is going to tell you what you need to know as a, as a sports scientist for each individual player? Um, so I guess, I guess it's really dependent on like with other sports here, like, like what the philosophy of the strength and conditioning coach is and, and where they see the development of their athletes at. Um, one of the challenges in the collegiate environment is that you have, um, potentially the number one recruited athlete in the country in your squad, um, that you could have bought in or someone that's very highly touted, um, that can come in and play straight away. And then you be bringing um, some potentially have some walk-on athletes um, who are coming in to fill out your squad. So the the difference in quality of athlete and potential for improvement is is very great. So how how you manage them and and, the, and obviously the tests that you administer over time is going to change from 
from athlete to athlete over time potentially. But we, we do have some baselines that we like to use and most teams will have a conditioning test or some form of running test, especially on the running team sports. They use ice hockey up and on ice one that, that they will complete. Um, and then when it comes to like things in the weight room um, and that kind of stuff, we uh, like standard protocols. Like there, um, our, our director of strength conditioning isn't a huge fan of, of 1RM testing. So usually it's more rep-based kind of testing with it's three to five rep kind of stuff and then finding um, numbers off that and then it's about profiling the athlete over time um, and then trying to figure out okay this is where our good athletes came in or this is maybe where an athlete that turned out to be really good came in and can we chart out that progression over a period of time and something that we're working on right now um, one of our assistant strength and conditioning coaches uh, Jeff Pulse is um, working uh, pretty uh, closely with Jason Nightingale from the Buffalo Sabres and we're, with our force plate trying to develop some protocols and those things and be able to profile things over time. So we've, we we looked at some commercial products that give us some numbers, but we decided to go down the route of building our own basically. Um, so uh, we've at the moment got about 25 numbers. We obviously need to narrow that down, um, but that may be per sport that we find there's different force plate numbers and then just using a simple counter movement jump test over time, using that as a um, as a really clear measure um, to, of uh, profiling our athletes and then understanding one, how they're moving and the where, where maybe there are deficiencies in, um, in movement or in strength. So so things that we, we want to look at is like, okay, through a, a four-week or a six-week block of training, this was the emphasis of training. These were the exercises we moved, uh, that we used. What parts of the force curve change based on these exercises? Were we able to manipulate the force curve just based on the exercises we used and the improvements that we got in the weight room or through speed training or, or, or whatever that may be? And then from the other side of the coin is like um, through, a, through a season where, where we're not training as much, especially in soccer, you may get one lift in a week in some of these really hectic scheduled periods, um, what is um, or how is the the curve changing maybe from a fatigue standpoint? Are we losing adaptation across the season? And if that's the case, at what rate? And then understanding, okay, what interventions can we potentially put in place to, to stop those decrements occurring, which is going to give our athletes a better chance of one, performing and two, um, maintaining a level of health. Cool. This is kind of going back a little bit, but you mentioned about incorporating uh, the, the kind of uh, one or two players that have been highly touted. So it's something that kind of fascinates me with the MLS when you've got guys coming over from, from Europe who are on obviously clearly big money, and then you've got incorporating them with guys who are on pretty significantly less money. Yep. How, do you, how do you guys kind of make that transition and get that guy who everyone knows is been touted around into the into the squad how do you get met that incorporation um usually um what i found here or seen with a lot of our teams is um the, the teams that have really good um like player or athlete leadership um it's a lot easier because um the athletes take a lot of control over the program um and will really like basically set the direction for where the team's going um like men's soccer has been pretty good with that recently like like we've had some some good recruits come in yet um there's a, a level of expectation. It's not just you just don't come in and you just aren't given a spot. You've got to earn it. So um, whether you're the, the first kid on the roster or you're the 30 kid on the roster, um, you, there's still a level of expectation with your training, with your compliance um, and all those kind of things. And for, for me, it's about um, those best kids or our captains and our leaders setting a standard. Um, and then if they set um, we're not upholding uh, different kids to different standards. So if we're holding every kid to the same standard, we're not then um, doing like different things by different kids to just because you're a good player doesn't mean you get away with something. Um, if you just hold them all to the same standard, I've found that um, that, that really works, especially in our environment in the collegiate setting. Mm -hmm. Cool. So you've discussed a little bit about feed giving feedback to coaches. How does that differ when you're giving feedback to athletes? Um, it's just the type of information and maybe the depth of information um, that we'll give to an athlete will be different. So there's certain things that like an athlete will get um, feedback on and a coach won't get feedback on. Like I sleep um, while we're trialing things. I'm not going to go to a coach and be like, hey, um, here's the information. Like he was out drinking three nights of the week, whatever it was. Um, it was that, that can happen with some of our sports and some of our athletes. But um, 
but in general, it'll be call the athlete in and show them and like, okay, let, let's let's try an intervention or let's try to change something up and then then see how that goes. Where where something like with GPS numbers, um, some coaches are very cognizant of of what the athletes see and then um, like as our soccer guys call it or our soccer coaches call it, and you probably heard it the whole pro zone runs and guys making runs to just try and get their numbers up and, <laughs> yeah. and those kind of things. And, and that's something that does concern coaches. And to be honest, it, it did concern me at the start until you start getting the consistency in the data and then you can show the coaches like, hey, it's been 20 games in a row. Like, give or take this athlete's produced within the same kind of range. So he's just not doing stuff for the sake of making, getting numbers and trying to look better. And then at that standpoint, so it took us a whole year essentially of data collection where I gave little pieces of information to the coaches that um, I felt could have an impact. Um, and some of the time it was just like a, a sheet of paper or an email and didn't really say much. Then there was other times um, if there was something really like important that I would go in and say, hey, did, did you notice this or something like that? But the coaches are generally pretty good, um, especially the ones that I've worked with so far or had uh, close working with that that it's not like some coaches that you hear about where they, they're reading it and they'll make a change and it maybe isn't acknowledged or said, oh, yeah, I've read that report where normally there's some form of discussion, whether it's a 20-second discussion or something that stimulates to become 10 minutes Um that that they've read the report and they've they've seen something on it. Um, whether it's someone that was maybe a little bit lazy in a game and they've seen it on film and it correlates to his numbers, or whether it's um, that someone's workload was excessively high. Um, there's usually some form of communication between me and the coaches about um, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Cool. So while we're on the kind of athlete care um, topic, how much of your job is, is is involved in kind of managing things outside of soccer, outside of football, and more in dealing with kind of athlete lifestyle? Yeah. So well, obviously here, um, so for people around the world that, that don't know a lot about um, the academic standards of a lot of the different universities, like Notre Dame is one of the premier academic programs in the US. So so it's not just the fact we get really good athletes or we get high-performing athletes here um, or athletes that we really develop to become that, but the academic standards and the academic stress here is is very extreme. Um, like Notre Dame, Stanford are probably the two biggest athletic performing programs that have this form of stress on them. Um, so it's, it's a unique environment. So, so one of my questions, and I got this um, from, from a colleague at another school, one of the questions on our questionnaire is, assessment today so um, so if we see stress and mood and these things starting to trend down on a wellness questionnaire and then two days later the athlete then like pops up and yeah they've, they've got a test or they've had a big assignment due and sleep's been going down and those kind of things there's some things that we don't have control on in in our portion of control with them um, and it's the whole 24-hour athlete that yeah in the in the collegiate setting usually see them between two and three hours a day depending on the day um, and they also have a one mandatory off day per week but it's how how are we helping them manage the stress around these other things, educating on the importance of sleep and showing, showing them some of the research or some basic numbers based around the academic performance will also go down um, when you're not sleeping. Like we have a lot of type A people or a lot of type A athletes here and, and they, they just want to be great at everything and, and that's, a, that's a great mentality to have but you still need to understand that you need to take care of yourself from a sleep and nutrition standpoint because if you're not fueling rehydrating um, and sleeping for recovery, it's going to, one, impact your academic performance, but then, two, um, impact your sporting performance. When then if one goes down, it's probably going to adversely affect the other, and then as one's affecting the other, it just starts spiraling out of control. So our biggest thing is just educating them on, on the sleep and the nutrition and those things, and it's not just going to help you physically for sport. It's also going to help you mentally um, from an academic standpoint. So what, what consequences are there for the for your guys if they're not keeping up to the uh, academia? Okay, so pretty much we've been very lucky the last couple of years um, or since I've been here there. The academic levels have been extremely high. Like we had a um, – so each sport has an elite 89 winner. Um, and so the elite 89 – so for every – there's 89 national championships and – uh, within a certain range, you have to have finished within a certain position. So men's soccer it was the teams at the final four for rowing, another national uh, national uh, event that I've been to. It's the teams there. So the athlete with the highest cumulative like grade point average um, 
within the teams competing there wins an award. And both of those teams, teams that have had a lot to do with, have both had an athlete win that award. So we've been lucky on those sports that, that we've had some very high academic achievers. Um, and there's a stress from those coaches um, on the importance of getting your studies done and doing those kind of things. Like on our road trip, um, like this weekend, I got no doubt that there will be a study period, like a mandatory study period, which is factored into our road trip and those kind of things. So it's building those things in, encouraging them. And then we've got coaches that'll, um, that'll maybe cancel a practice session or make a practice session one out of the five that week optional, especially in some individual sports, and then say, instead of coming to practice, go visit with your supervisor or if you need to go visit with a professor, go and do that stuff because it then gives the, the student-athlete the like the confidence, okay, but they, they care about my academics as well and obviously academics does come first. So if we're giving them the opportunity to go and take care of those things, they want them feel more comfortable about that, which then enables them to relax when they're over with us and obviously or hopefully subsequently perform better. 100%. Cool. So we've gone about the coach, gone about the athlete. I just want to bring it back to the kind of strength and conditioning coach, sports scientists themselves. So I had a good chat with uh, chat with uh, Brett Bartholomew about the the importance of coach health. And just, I mean, we talked off, uh, off air just before the, the podcast got going about, about this exact subject. And I just want to get your thoughts on how important it is and maybe the reasons behind that kind of sergeant major um kind of focus when you first get into strength and condition and first in last out kind of mentality just want to get your thoughts on that and how that's kind of affected your kind of upbringing as a, a sports scientist strength and conditioning coach yeah um like it's probably only something which has really dawned on me in the last six months or so is like how important it is to to get away from the facility and whether it's like even sitting at home on the couch or if you finish early enough, you can go play nine holes of golf if that's something that you like to do or different parts of the world, you can go have a surf, um, whatever it is that you need to do to get away. It's, it's so important. Um, like it's like when I first moved over and like, yeah, you need to earn your stripes and there are some, some long days involved, but but in the end, if you're not taking care of yourself and practicing what you're preaching to your athletes, it's only going to have a negative impact on you and the way you deal with athletes, the way you deal with coaches. And then it's only going to affect the performance of everything. And um, you need to be a high-performing coach, manager, supervisor, sports scientist, whatever it is to have or to obviously help have high-performing athletes. Like if you're just coming in and you haven't slept and you're really struggling to get through the day and, and all these kind of things, like the athletes are going to, feed off that negative energy that you're potentially supplying to the room, especially from a strength and conditioning coach standpoint, then how does that then in turn impact them or how, how do they feel um, based off that energy or what does that do to their performance um, when you're working with the group? So for me, it's like like something that I've changed um, probably in the, like about 18 months ago. Like I was one of those people that thought, yeah, I don't need to sleep um, like five, six hours a night and I'm good. And made a cognizant decision that I need to sleep more. So um, so some nights that requires going to bed at 9 o'clock if it means there's an early start or an early team. And um, it's not something that you change overnight, your sleep patterns. And that's something that when you deal with student-athletes, you got to stress. And like, I found it like it hard to try and sleep more than that period at the start. Like, But it, over time, developed, it went from 6 to 6 hours 15, 6 hours 30. Now, all of a sudden, like, if I don't get seven and a half hours sleep, I'm feeling pretty average some days. So, so for me, like, the other night, we finish a game, you get home at 11 o'clock after an evening game, you, you got to be back at seven o'clock the next morning. I don't have enough time for my, my like, what I require is the sleep that I need these days. So, um, so I, I found, like, the day after the game a little bit of a struggle just because I hadn't had my full sleep and didn't have my full energy. And then just little things about taking care of your body, whether it's through nutrition and making sure you're getting your meals in um, and those kind of things. And then the biggest thing is, and for us and our director of strength and conditioning has always supported this, um, he's like, if you, if you don't have an early team, don't be in at 6 o'clock. And if you don't have a 6 p.m. team, make sure you go home. If you've got family, go spend time with the family and those kind of things because in the end, it's only going to affect your social life and your family life and those things in the end. And the, and the last thing is for, for some of the, the, the people that have family and kids in our profession, um, the last thing you need is, is that impacting all those kind of things because they're the people in your life that really matter. And so for me, it's, it's always trying to make sure that like, I can have a chat to my parents and family at home on the weekend and those kind of things. 
and like, and does that mean not doing some other social events sometimes? Yes, but that's something that's important to me or whether it's, you know, I'm chatting to friends and those kind of things, just catching up with people that I, I maybe can't speak to every day. And um, I think it's so important that you're doing that kind of stuff just to, just to check out of work and like something that I would use to take work home and do it at home yet. Yet my computer hasn't left the office in a while now just because to go home because I'm like, when I go home, I need some home time. And yeah, there will be professional development things. I may read an article or listen to a podcast or whatever it is, but it's not like I'm going home to, to study GPS data or to look at it um, anymore, especially at 11 o'clock at night. Like no, nothing good's happening from the time I get home at 11 to when I get back back in the office at 7, at 7 in the morning. I'm not changing anything after a game night at that point. I may as well come back in, assess it the next morning, make sure I do a thorough assessment, then get the, the right information over to the coaches rather than sending it over at 1 a.m. in the morning when he's not going to read it till the next morning when he gets into the office anyway. Yes, he might read it on his morning elliptical at 5.30, so he may be disappointed <laughs> he didn't have it at that point of the day. But, uh, but in the end, that's something that we just got to deal with and um, and like, and they're 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 pretty good, especially the soccer coaches I've worked with. Like, they they understand, and they've all got families and those kind of things. So, um, like, looking after yourself is is something that that they're pretty good with. I mean, from my point of view, uh, Twitter, Facebook, all kind of social media outlets are great because you can get so much information, but they're bad because you can get so much information. So if you're on Twitter at a kind of night, you finish work and you see that someone who you, you kind of follow closely has posted something, posted a paper, posted an excerpt from a book, it's almost like, okay, this, this guy's put this up. I've got to read that. And then before you know where you are, you've got four things to read. You can only manage two, so you put two aside to read tomorrow. That same thing happens tomorrow. And there's all this great information that it just kind of consumes your life. And I think, I know you've just said about the last six months, exactly the same from, from my personal point of view, actually thinking, okay, I'm, I've, I've taken Twitter off my phone and Facebook off my phone a weekend because that's, you know, I've got stuff to do. I've got, a, yeah. I've got a life rather than stuck in front of the laptop or in front of my phone reading papers on God knows what, print something that's not going to benefit me. Um, so I think it is hugely important. Yeah, like for me, like I, it's like the the worst button on the phone, apart from the favorite button on Twitter, is the center reading list on your iPhone or something <laughs> like that. And my center reading list, I actually opened it up the other day, and there must have been a thousand things in there. And I just ended up going through like, not nah, delete, delete, and just started yeah. taking stuff off. It's like it, there's so much interesting stuff, but it's just a start. Like it's like it, you can go back and find that stuff at some point. But the things that I'm trying to read now are the things that can impact what we're doing today, tomorrow, and maybe the next day, not the things that are going to maybe impact us in two years' time. Yes, there's some really nice to have things out there, but being realistic in our situation and our environment right now, we're not going to have all these things within the next couple of weeks. So so let's sort of back burner those kind of things and really focus on getting better at what we're trying to do. And yes, there will be some things we need to read to, to advance our knowledge and figure out what that next thing is, but we're not looking for the thing, as I say, that we're trying to do in two and three years' time right now. Yeah, 100%. And that's, I think that's why podcasts have become so um, so widely kind of listened to because it's, it's not, well, it can be, but often it's not something that adds on to the day. It becomes part of your day. So it becomes on your commute or it becomes when you're on your elliptical at seven o'clock in the morning or, yeah. you know, anything like that. So it doesn't actually, it doesn't have to interrupt your day. Whereas if you're reading a paper, reading a book, almost you have to get, you get, have to get consumed in it, which can add to your day, which is why I think podcasts have been so, um, so popular recently. Yeah, for sure. So just one last thing. What does the, uh, what does the future hold for you? Um, so at the moment, like I just really want to, um, build or help or finish building out what we've started here. Like, like we're in a, a position where I feel like it's about to take off soon, and we're really about to get some some good traction and um, and be able to assist in coaches in making decisions and and have an impact with them. And then obviously that has an impact with the student athletes as well. So in some respect, I would I would like to finish what I've started here um, uh, in, and, and help build this out and sort of get it to a stage where it's it's stable stable and sustainable over time. And then from there, um, I'm not really sure. There's obviously some rules of potentially heading back home at some point or um, looking at professional sports and those kind of things. I'm not really... Um, sure to be honest where the next step would be but um like the immediate thing is i'd like to sort of finish what i've done here and then 
Um, and then, yeah, who knows um, where, where you head to after that. Maybe, maybe it's uh, a PhD or something. That's always something that I've always wanted to do um, and something that I always think about is what questions are we trying to answer. And there's hundreds um, that get posed every day. So maybe one of those really dwells on me and, and it turns into a PhD at some point. So, so, so maybe something like that. Cool. Plenty of things to look forward to then. Yeah, for sure. Cool. So where can people um, keep it up to date with what's going on? You, Twitter, Facebook, that kind of thing? Yeah, Facebook for me is sort of really personal. I try and keep Facebook just to immediate friends. Um, but no offense to the industry, everyone is friends in some respect. <laughs> but, but I try and keep that just to close friends, family, um, those kind of things. I'm not one of those people that has hundreds of thousands of Facebook friends. But, but Twitter... Um, uh, reasonably active was used to be more active, but sort of just don't have time as much time anymore. But I'm still on Twitter. It's just at Matt Howley, so M A T T H O W L E Y um, is where I am on Twitter. So that's probably the best place that people can get in contact with me um, if they've got any questions or those kind of things. And then yeah, more than happy to to uh, to email or exchange emails at, at some point or phone call, Skype, whatever it is. If, if someone's um, got a real interest or, and wants to catch up. Cool. Well, I'll put all the links on the on the on the website so people can get in touch with you there. So, yeah, that's that's about it for us. Um, just thanks for your time, taking uh, time out your morning. Um, hope you've got time for to sit next to your coach on the uh, on the bike or something in the gym uh, while he's reading his reports. Um, so, yeah, thanks for your time, and we'll um, we'll keep in touch. All right, no problem. Thank you very much for having me on. Thanks, mate. Speak to you soon. Thanks for tuning in to episode 54 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Huge thanks to both Val Performance and Simply Faster for sponsoring the episode today. So if you are interested in looking back over the last 18 months of the podcast and listening to previous episodes, get over to paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash podcast. All links mentioned in this episode, as well as the technology segment, get over to paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash 54. Like I mentioned previously in the intro, I'd love your feedback on the technology segment. Please let me know on Twitter, Facebook, or via email, and I will speak to you in episode 55.